welcome you all formally to this week's Citizens Climate Training Program. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight what we're going to dive into is the chance to join Rick and Dana for an overview of the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act that will explore a couple of the key details about the policy, as well as resources that are available for you to understand it and feel more equipped with the policy know-how yourself. And then, especially for new volunteers that may have joined CCL since the last time the Energy Innovation Act was introduced in Congress, we wanted to provide a lot of time tonight just to help you gain a deeper understanding and ask any questions that you have. All right, so with that, though, let me introduce our two esteemed speakers tonight and then uh, review our agenda and a couple of key resources. Dana Nucitelli is an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. He's written about climate change since 2010 for Skeptical Science and for The Guardian from 2013 to 2018 and since 2018 for Yale Climate Connections. He is also a wonderful award-winning journalist from the prestigious SEAL Environmental Journalism Award as well as the National Center for Science Education Friend of the Planet Award. So uh, we are in good hands with Dana and his communication. And we're also in great hands with Rick Knight. Rick Knight's mission as research coordinator with CCL is to continue to work and review independent experts to strengthen our science, our technology, and our policy fundamentals, well-versed with the evolution and the ongoing policy details behind the Energy Innovation Act. Rick's portfolio includes updating and maintaining our laser talks, curating white papers, and managing our analytical projects that will help our volunteers perform at their very best. And prior to his time with CCL, he completed a 40-year career in energy and pollution control research at the Gas Technology Institute. So he brings that know-how with him as well. All right, so if we've done our job well tonight, we're going to have the chance to review the following agenda. I'm going to briefly talk about three key resources, and then we're actually going to have Dana and Rick model how they talk at a very high level, like an overview about the basics of the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, as if you may have never heard of it before, or another tabling event or an outreach, just hearing for the first time. And then after that, we'll literally open it up for Q&A until close to the top of the hour, and I'll close by a reminder of how you can help boost this policy and take action where you're at. So with that, though, let me just start by reminding people, if you're not familiar, we have a wonderful Q&A resource that our research department as well as others on staff have put together. I'm going to put a link to it in the chat. And basically what this does is answer some of the most frequent and important questions that we've encountered from you in the field that you've been asked and maybe stumped by or would like more detail and additional sources behind regarding the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. So you can browse this page to find answers to your questions about the Energy Innovation Act. And you can also find additional links where you can give presentations and all the other resources that are available on CCL Community. And again, just a reminder, if you don't find a question that you are looking for, you can visit CCL uh, Community's forums. I see some frequent flyer friends here tonight. And based on popular demand, we can easily expand that Q&A to also highlight ones that you find are important for your outreach. So for example, this Q&A you know, has anything from what are the main features of the bill? How is it different from the last time it was introduced? What's the emission reduction schedule? How do adults and children get handled? What are any special provisions for agriculture or military? Or how does it index to inflation? You name it, there's a whole host of helpful questions. And again, as a little shout out, here on the right-hand side is the new bill sponsor, Representative Carbajal, wearing a CCL pin. 
with our very own CFO, Olivia Malones, who was at the press conference last week. So I like highlighting that too, because we're really excited that Carbohol, Representative Carbohol has introduced and uh, made this possible to gain momentum behind. All right, so the other question that um, I often encounter is, okay, well, it's great to have an informational Q&A, but if you're in dialogue with someone, what we try so hard as CCLRs to practice is reflective listening and coming at a conversation from values-based listening. And so in that case, what we've also provided you is an additional resource that's called Handling Challenging Questions. And what that aims to do, I'll put a link to that in the chat as well, is provide you with the skills and resources to respond to questions gracefully, since that's really key for all of us to be successful advocates. So what this resource does is it compiles a lot of those general questions, and then it provides first and foremost background on how to best engage with those who have questions and critiques or concerns around the Energy Innovation Act itself or CCL's approach. And then it also gives you a background recommendation on each of the key areas. So you can talk about underlying values, you know, concern over market solutions, you name it. It gives you a little bit more context for what other people that we've heard that share those concerns have for their information. And it recommends some key responses and ways that you can engage in dialogue. So it's not just a one-way flow of information and you sound like you're parroting talking points for three minutes and then they walk away. The other thing I'll just highlight with this too is if something is missing on this, especially with what you encounter, again, please use the forums and we'd love to be able to help refine and add additional questions in the future based on your experience in the field. All right, so before going to Q&A, the one last thing that I'd like to highlight before passing it to Rick and Dana are just a reminder that when we communicate about the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, what we really want to put first and foremost in people's minds are the four main benefits. And so what I've done here is outlined each of those four with a clear, crisp sentence. They don't have to be in this order. You can tailor your message based on your audience and who you know to be conversing with. But for me, at least, these are ways that I would talk about the policy before getting even into the details about how it works. So number one, it's a policy that puts us on a clear path to achieving net zero emissions by 2050, which again, is hard to believe right now is we're almost as close to that as we are to the year 2000. We also wanna think about the, uh, the benefits of the act making fossil fuels more expensive so businesses have the incentive to innovate and compete, and then in turn, providing the best low cost clean energy alternatives. So in turn, that provides affordable clean energy for all of us, which is where we need to transition to. The other key thing with the Energy Innovation Act, it returns that money back to households and ensures that the majority of us as Americans will actually have more money at our disposal than we do before, thanks to the dividend portion of the cash back part of the bill. And then the last thing that we always like highlighting as well is that air pollution right now is killing and sickening tens of thousands of Americans. And this policy gives us a quick and efficient reduction of that pollution that starts preventing those premature deaths right away. So again, you might find that your audience is more attracted to one of these, and you can really lean in and talk about that and explore any of those themes and those benefits in your own discussion. And we really encourage you to tailor your message based to your audience. But what I'd like to do also is model to make it come alive in your own rendition, to talk and describe this policy and why it excites you in your own unique way, especially after highlighting those four main benefits. So I'm actually gonna pass it to Dana and then to Rick to share how they might, in an initial conversation with somebody new to this idea, 
describe how the policy works. I'll pass it to you, Dana. All right. I've probably got a relatively nerdy way of explaining it because that's my MO. Um, but I would say the Energy Innovation Act, uh, most importantly, puts a price on carbon pollution, which is the single most effective climate policy because it gets right to the source of the problem, putting that price on the pollution that's causing climate change and making polluters pay for their pollution because uh, pollution should not be free. And then so that the financial burden of that carbon price doesn't fall on American households, we take all of the revenue, send it back uh, to everybody an equally sized uh, cashback rebate check. And then for people who have the smallest carbon footprint, which is generally lower and middle income Americans, that uh, cashback check will be larger than their increased energy bills. And so they will come out ahead with a net income from the bill, which has the added benefits of reducing income inequality and also alleviating poverty. So there's all kinds of good stuff that it does and everybody should support the Energy Innovation Act. Yeah, to, to expand a little bit on the nerdiness of, of, of the message, but one of the important things is that the fee is charged as soon as you, we can do it after the fossil fuels come out of the ground, rather than at the smokestack where the pollution comes out, you charge it on the coal, on the oil, on the gas. And that way, it it gets passed on through the whole chain. Uh, the people who buy those fuels, for example, the utilities, the refineries, the uh, manufacturers that use natural gas, they're the ones who will see the fee. And they're the ones who will have the incentive to change their practices. And so it's been it's been uh, argued and we completely agree that that's really the best way to do it also the simplest way because you don't have to measure pollution coming out of millions of smokestacks you just have a few a few hundred coal mines or a few uh, a few hundred um, uh, measuring stations from the from the uh, oil wells and as far as uh, then what happens with the money it gets recycled as Dana said back to households in the form of a carbon cash back. You know, that would probably be a bank deposit, but it could be a check. And uh, for something like two thirds of households, it's gonna be more than what they'll see in increased costs. Not only their energy costs, but the costs of goods that they buy that have a carbon footprint embedded in them. So for example, when farmers buy fertilizer that's uh, carbon intensive, uh, they'll see the fertilizer that's made from fossil fuels get more expensive, but companies that are using uh, green hydrogen to make their fertilizer, they'll be able to um, beat those prices. And finally, the carbon border adjustment, which is a little bit complex, but what it really says is that we don't want companies, manufacturers that make goods that have to pay the carbon tax to be tempted to move their factories overseas where there are, are no carbon taxes. Now, most of our major trading partners already have carbon pricing, but there are still a lot of countries that don't. So what this says is that um, carbon rich products coming in from countries that don't have carbon pricing will, be, will have to pay an equivalent fee at the border so that there's no advantage 
for American companies to move their factories overseas. So that's what the carbon border adjustment amounts to. So uh, I guess I'll stop there and uh, we can start taking questions. That sounds great. Yeah, we've saved the rest of this time here. We have a whole half hour plus for your Q&A. What have you encountered in the field? What are you curious about that we haven't had the chance to highlight? Please use the Q&A feature rather than the chat um, so that we'll be able to highlight the um, experiences and uh, respond to these. And you can also upvote questions that allow that to be something that, especially as we start getting these streaming in, we'll go with the most popular ones first. So as we're waiting, Rick, I know that you responded to one of the questions ahead of time about um, natural gas plants and the impact that this policy would have on that. I also see that we had another question that neither of us um, have spoken about yet, and that is telling a little bit more about the Canadian experience. Do either of you want to speak a little bit about that? And I'll put a link to the blog in the chat. I'll take, I'll take it because um, I did write a nerd corner post about that. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think they started in 2014, I don't know, 2008 in um, British Columbia. So it was, it was being approached uh, province by province. But um, ultimately in 2014, the government in Canada decided to start imposing a, uh, what they call federal backstop carbon price for uh, provinces that did not have a strong climate policy. I said, well, you have to, we have to use the federal plan. And I think as of now, all the provinces have either adopted in, in part or in whole that carbon pricing plan, or in some cases they have their own climate policy that the uh, uh, Canadian government has deemed equivalent. So at the beginning, uh, there was a lot of ways that the revenue was being used other than to give people household dividends. But over time, and due largely to the work of CCL Canada, uh, we were able to convince, or, or the people in those provinces were able to be convinced, uh, the lawmakers, that they really would make their voters happy if they started giving money back to households. So they do that now. They uh, they send about, I think it's about 80% of the money back to households in the form of some kind of carbon uh, dividend. And uh, people really like that. Uh, I would also like to add that in spite of the fact that many people think of Canada as being a much more progressive country than, than we are, they had a hell of a time getting this policy passed and accepted. Uh, they had to survive some pretty tough challenges in, in their national elections. But now it's uh, it's become pretty much part of a normal life. I think that was perfect, Rick. Thanks so much for asking that question ahead of time. And uh, I put a link to Rick's blog in the chat for those that want to find out more. We also have a training on community. Uh, but let's dive into some of these other ones. And again, keep putting any questions that you want to dive into with Dana and Rick tonight in the Q&A or you can raise your hand. We've got three of them here. Slotted first with our friend from Alaska. George asks, what is the research that either of you might know on people intuiting the meaning of carbon cashback? Actually, Brett, do you know, has Leslie done any language testing on the efficacy of the carbon cashback phrase? 
We definitely have done internal testing that's limited. And the question I have for you, Dana, in looking this one up is, is this study that you wrote in the blog um, also kind of highlighting the cashback question itself, the nature of climate change discussion around the popularity of a carbon price? Did that include cashback language? Taking me back a little ways here. That was what that was. Okay, I'm looking at it. <laughs> January 2022. Um, I don't think that particular study, which was looking at, um, as I recall, it was looking at the favorability or how people view carbon pricing and and um, essentially like they if you educate them about it, then they're more likely to support it. I don't remember the exact details, and I don't think they tested different language necessarily. Um, but they did find basically there's always this there's this question of are people's views kind of set and determined by their politics and facts don't matter, or do facts actually matter and you can still change people's opinion by educational efforts? And in this case, the study found that yes, education on carbon pricing does make a difference um, and it can change people's opinions. But I don't think it looked at like specific language whether you should talk about dividends or cashback or pricing or fees or anything like that. I will say, and Rick, feel free to build on this too, I know that the choice this cycle to intentionally lean more into the cashback messaging is based on the intuition that a lot of us have had in tabling. At least this has happened to me. I'm guessing this has probably happened to you as well, if you've been tabling in the last couple of years, and that is that the term dividend is just often out of parlance for many regular Americans. That isn't something that we intuitively think of or really know what to make of. It's a fancy banking term or a stock trading term. And so the real, the real goal here, whether or not we have messaging testing to prove it yet, is just that this is much more acceptable and grounded in kind of a common experience. And I, yeah, I would I would add too that um, this this came out of our marketing department, which is consists of very smart people that uh, understand how language is interpreted, as Brett just explained. And, and to 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 get some really hard research on that would require uh, running focus groups around the country, and as you can imagine, that's pretty expensive. Uh, political campaigns do that because they have lots of campaign donors to support it. But um, it's it's something, you know, considering the fact that no one else is using that term carbon cashback uh, except CCL, it's it's a little too much for us to undertake. I do agree. But that if you know anybody that has rich pockets for some of that message testing support, do let us know because I think that would be a very important and uh, you know validating research project to take on yeah i do agree that just intuitively like dividend is like a very technical and unclear term whereas cashback is like a very simple and clear term like you're getting cash back and so it's pretty easy for people to understand what that means i think all right let's go next to this great question from linda about microplastics what would you say rick or dana about people who tell me that microplastics are a bigger health threat than climate change I mean, I would say there's no reason, like, it's not like an either or thing. Like, we can only fight against microplastics or we can only fight against climate change. Like, if you're concerned about microplastics, then, you know, 
<laughs> no, you must not choose. Um, then, you know, to take action to try to reduce microplastics and also take action to address climate change. Um, I don't think I wouldn't want to get into like an argument about like which is a bigger threat because there's some subjectivity in like what you consider a threat. Um, and, you know, microplastics are also like a relatively new thing. And so we don't have like tons and tons of research on their direct health impacts. And so I don't think you want to get into like a fight over that. I think you just want to say, yeah, microplastics are a, a problem. Climate change is also a problem. Let's do something about both. I love that. And I would say that that handling challenging questions resource that I've highlighted earlier too is a really key way for any of these zingers for you, especially if you feel like you're forced into making a choice or you find that your defense hackles are raising up just to give you a little bit more of that equipment to slow down and figure out how to engage first in listening and affirming people from where they're at before having to be right and responding with why we, you know, we're in the right camp because we think that this is the best policy. Um, so I really would encourage people uh, before you go out in the field to check that out as a way to just again, remember that the most powerful persuasion is when people feel listened to and affirmed and known, and then they are opened up from there to have more of a rich dialogue. All right, Steve asked this next question um, that obviously both of you can speak to here. This is a, a great one that many people are probably curious about. What are the major differences between the Energy Innovation Act this session and the version in last Congress? I'll take, uh, take a shot at that. Uh, well, mainly the start date uh, is much later. Uh, the bill is written so that the fee would actually start being imposed in 2025. Uh, and accordingly, uh, all the other dates in the bill of um, that, that show, for example, what's the basis for uh, inflation uh, adjustment have been updated as well. Uh, one thing that's a little bit more significant is in order to meet the U.S. commitment to reduce emissions 50% uh, below 2005 emissions by 2030, we changed the uh, statutory targets in the bill. I shouldn't say we, I should say the sponsors did, uh, so that we would hit that 50% in 2030 and also hit uh, net zero in 2050. So there were some adjustments to the percentage uh, percentages above which you have to start applying other policies and also at, at that point at which the annual increase would go from ten dollars per ton of co2 to fifteen dollars if, if uh, emissions didn't drop below those targets i think other than that there's really uh, no substantial changes excellent thanks for clarifying that steve anything that you're going to say dana uh, no, I was just going to reiterate and like emphasize that when the, the bill was introduced to the last in the last session of Congress, it was introduced just before we set our Paris commitments, the Biden administration did. And so at that time, the bill was, was uh, aiming for net zero emissions by 2050, but it didn't have any earlier targets. And so the targets that it, that it set for emissions reductions each year got us to like a little over 40% cuts by 2030. Mm -hmm. And then, so this time around, we wanted to say, okay, now we have this commitment to get to 50% cuts by 2030. So let's update the targets to make sure that they're consistent with that. And so that's why it cuts uh, emissions, or at least the targets cutting emissions by a larger amount more quickly to meet that 2030 target. 
Excellent. Thanks for going into the details there. Um, this next one, Gina, I'm going to put a link to in the um, response for the Q&A. So, you know, I'm putting links for some of the answers here in their corresponding questions, but I'll just ask about that first here. And that is, what is the source of your figure that two thirds of households will come out ahead? Rick and Dana, do you want to share a little bit more about the household impact study? Yeah, let me go first. The household impact study was uh, updated in 2020, so it's getting a little bit old, but um, as far as we can tell, there, there really wouldn't be any major change in that uh, finding. That's where it was found that uh, up to two-thirds of households would come out ahead. There's also been some work done at by another nonprofit called the Carbon Tax Center. Uh, they were the ones who originally made that statement uh, all the way back in, I'm not sure when, uh, when that was, but perhaps 2016. Uh, and so we confirmed that with the household impact study, which was done by an outside contractor, not by us at CCL. So we're we're debating whether that should be updated as well, but I think uh, we want to see the support for the bill uh, becoming uh, a lot stronger than just the two opening sponsors. Um, that was a, a thorough answer. I would just maybe add that the two thirds or, or so of households that come out ahead are the ones, as I mentioned, with the smallest carbon footprints, which are generally generally the lower and middle income households. Not always, because there's always exceptions, but that's usually the case. All right, this is a great one, a very Schumpeter question. Um, what can we say about concerns for job loss with the changes in technology that the clean that clean energy can bring? What kind of uh, research is out there about creative destruction that this disruption about clean energy is bringing forth and shaking out in jobs and tech changes? Either of you know of good studies on that? Um, yeah, Emily, one way that's coming up right now is the uh, concerns over EV manufacturing in Michigan, for example. Um, union workers striking because they're in part because they're worried that EVs kind of just they have fewer parts than gasoline powered cars. They also require less maintenance than gasoline powered cars. And so in that sense, there are concerns that switching to EVs uh, has fewer manufacturing and maintenance jobs than if we continue using gas powered cars, um, which my response to that particular concern is that I mean, everybody is switching to EVs right now. Like I'm reading this report by the International Energy Agency right now that estimates that something like 75% of new car sales globally in 2030 will be EVs. So like we're actually behind most of the rest of the world, but we are also rapidly transitioning to EVs. So like if you want to, if like the way to lose jobs is to not be making EVs and batteries because that's what everybody's going to be buying in just a few years. So um, yeah, you just have to take steps to protect like union jobs but you can't you can't stop the transition that's already happening um and then just in general um like solar and wind uh are cup of like kind of the biggest growth uh have have his have in recent years been the biggest growth uh in, in jobs in industries in the country or among the biggest jobs growth industries in the country and employ quite a few people um and we're also seeing these this huge boom in, in domestic manufacturing of like battery plants and solar plants and all this stuff that we're bringing into uh, this domestic manufacturing in the United States as a result of the uh, incentives and the Inflation Reduction Act to do domestic supply chains and domestic manufacturing. So 
uh, there's a lot of cases in which switching to green technologies actually increases domestic jobs. Um, and there are some challenging exceptions, but again, like that transition is happening. And so like, if we want to have jobs in these, in, you know, in auto manufacturing and other technologies, like we have to just, we have to be building those technologies in the United States. Let me add to something about that, that related to the EV question. In general, if you think about the economics of making anything, any product, the cost of the product really represents labor that was expended somewhere. And right now, a lot of the materials that go into EVs are imported because we haven't developed those industries here in the US, but that's happening, that's changing rapidly due to not only the Inflation Reduction Act, but just the fact that that companies want to um, bring those jobs back to the U.S. So there will be different kind of jobs, perhaps. And hopefully uh, some of those workers, uh, they'll start pressuring the manufacturers to let them join the unions so that we can get back to normal. But if, if electric vehicles are going to be priced on par with uh, gasoline vehicles, then jobs will have to be created to to support that manufacturer. That was a great question. And obviously feel free to clarify anything further on that, uh, but thanks for asking Ingrid. All right, George asked this next question here, uh, and that is, do we wanna use the term integrity mechanism for the increase to $15 per year if our emissions don't drop fast enough? How would you talk about that as far as the policy design for that kind of backstop in case we aren't meeting our targets? I mean, I would say the term integrity mechanism is very wonky and probably on par with saying dividend instead of saying cashback, where people are going to be like, what the heck are you talking about if you say the word integrity mechanism? So, I mean, I would just say uh, the increase, like if we're not meeting the targets in the bill to stay on track for our Paris targets, 50% cuts by 2030 and net zero by 2050 then the price increases by $15 per ton or more each year to get us back on track with our targets and just kind of describe it in a few words instead of using a, a jargony phrase that people are just going to, it's going to go over their heads and you're going to lose them. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, George, thanks for highlighting that. Again, that one is detailed more in the Q&A resource. And however you want to use language to make it accessible in your communications, you know, feel free to experiment and let us know um, with obviously what you found to work in the field, because this is obviously a learning that all of us can benefit from based on the crowdsourcing knowledge that we possess here collectively. Uh, we are all caught up with the Q&A, so let's just open it up for the phones. Does anyone have anything that we haven't gotten to yet that you really were hoping that we could speak to tonight? Um, yes, um, I... I just joined CCL recently and uh, I'm, well, I'm in Florida. So, you know, we've, we've had our issues here um, with uh, Santis blocking um, some of the, the uh, funds coming into the state. And I'm just wondering at a local level um, what we can do to help. I'm not really uh, clear on, on what as little old me, what can I do, you know, besides, um, sending letters to Congress and calling at a local level. I'm not sure what, you know, what I can do. So I, I don't know if it's too much of a general question, but 
it's something that I hope to receive somewhat of an answer tonight. <laughs> All right, well, great. This is a perfect segue in some ways, Ingrid, just because uh, I actually had this teed up based on what we reviewed here this last week. Um, and it really depends on your own passion and interests with what you are called to do. Uh, but but we, you know, especially as a review here for, you know, relatively newer volunteers, we operate under what we call the five levers of political will. So we try to influence effective climate change policy through lobbying Congress, media relations, grassroots outreach, grass tops engagement, and chapter or volunteer development. And so within that framework, you could really specialize in any of those areas specifically for the Energy Innovation Act. And what I would recommend is, depending on this list here, what makes you come alive or sparks joy, um, I would, you know, feel free to consider pursuing and plugging in with your local chapter. And if you're having a hard time finding people locally to organize with, reaching out to Salemi Hernandez as well, your regional coordinator, who exists exclusively to empower you to help find the resources and support within your own local community. She's also a Floridian. And so again, tabling and clipboarding, engaging people publicly with kind of the chance to write to Congress and to educate them about this key policy detail, onboarding and engaging and creating a welcoming space for new volunteers, scheduling presentations, maybe not a presenter yourself, but you like helping a team kind of find opportunities to present. Maybe you want to present yourself. We have slide decks for that. Or thinking about grass tops community leaders that we could leverage the trusted messenger status that they have with their members of Congress and highlight their support for this bill to help shape Congress's interest in it as well. So that's a really quick overview, but probably the, you know, the level of depth on some level at least you're looking for. One of the things that um, when, when I started my chapter back in 2012, we spent a lot of time talking about was media because uh, we felt and, and CCL felt that there was a real lack of coverage in the media for climate and climate policy. Now, of course, that may have changed in terms of covering climate change, but uh, we find that writing letters to the editor and engaging with the media in generally can be really effective because what you need to do is, is draw people's attention to the, the issue. You know, people are interested in the things that they hear about the most. And, um, we saw over the the years since uh, CCL started to grow that public interest in climate change and belief in human cause of climate change has increased tremendously from where it was uh, 10, 11 years ago. And we take complete credit for doing that all of our on our own. But of course, a lot of other people were involved. But I think that that's a good way to get started. Uh, right to look at your newspaper, local newspaper, or even nas uh, national newspapers and see when there's something in there that you think that they might need to hear your opinion about uh, about climate change and about climate policy. Send them a letter. You might get published. And that feels good. That's a good way to get people to um, feel like they're contributing. Yeah, well put. And if you haven't yet tonight, I do want to encourage people to email your support to your member of Congress in the House, as well as follow us on social media. And just a reminder here that we have our climate action program every month gearing towards these key climate policies that we're trying to support. And so in particular, if you're looking for a link for tonight's training, 
Um, you can just simply go to cclusa.org slash energy for that action. And then if you're also interested not only in writing Congress, but in following and amplifying CCL's um, social media posts, um, you are more than welcome to also highlight um, those at the Spread the Word page, and that's cclusa.org forward slash spread the word or STW. Thank you all. Thank you so much for being here, for your advocacy in the community on this key policy. Let, uh, let us know if you have feedback on ways that we can improve those resources that we've highlighted tonight. We absolutely want to continue to iterate and make those even more effective with your outreach. And a reminder that you can follow our YouTube channel where we will have this training posted live by tomorrow, as well as our forums where the wonderful Rick, Dana, myself, and many other staff can respond to your questions and continue to enhance your own advocacy. And that's at cclusa.org forward slash forums. So with that, stay safe, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.